from VOA, Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. I'm Kim Lewis, guest host of this special edition of PCUSA. The International Rescue Committee, a global humanitarian group, says Russia's invasion of Ukraine has uprooted millions of people on a speed and scale not seen since World War II. Half of all Ukrainian children have been displaced since the beginning of the invasion. The United Nations estimates that 12 million people inside Ukraine will need relief and protection, while more than 4 million Ukrainian refugees may need protection and assistance in neighboring countries in the coming months. As Russian troops continue their assault on Ukraine, the humanitarian situation on the ground, particularly in besieged population centers, is becoming increasingly dire. Ceasefire violations mean there is no safe corridor for evacuations in many areas, while attacks on critical infrastructure have cut out heat, electricity, and water in some places. Critical supplies are also becoming dangerously scarce. In other crises areas of the world, such as in Yemen, the civil conflict has grown more violent since the start of this year. The Saudi-led coalition backing the country's official government has spent seven years fighting a rebel group called the Houthis, using mainly airstrikes. They, in turn, have used drones and missiles to attack both Saudi Arabia and its ally, the United Arab Emirates. Because of the war, Yemen is now facing one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. In Afghanistan, about 8 million children are in crisis and require emergency education this year, an increase of nearly threefold compared to needs at the start of 2021. In the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC, which has grappled with war, civil strife, and multiple rebellions since 1996, women and girls suffer disproportionately from high rates of violence and extreme poverty. At the same time, services such as health care, psychosocial support, security, and justice for survivors of violence are limited. Other countries presently experiencing some of the worst humanitarian situations are Sudan, South Sudan, and Syria. These examples are only a few out of many ongoing instances where people are in constant crisis situations brought on by wars, internal conflicts, deteriorating human rights situations, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of these are complex crises that have been going on for years. However, as new conflicts compound existing crises, the challenges become overwhelming for humanitarian and refugee agencies. Well, joining me to discuss issues surrounding some of the global ongoing humanitarian crises and the international community's response to them is Secretary General of the Independent Humanitarian Organization, Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Eglin. Mr. Eglin has over 30 years of experience in human rights, humanitarian crises, and conflict resolution. His career includes distinguished appointments, including in early 2021, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres appointed Eglin to serve as chair of the Independent Senior Advisory Panel on Humanitarian Deconfliction in Syria. In 2015, he was appointed by the former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon as special advisor to the UN Special Envoy for Syria. From 2011 to 2013, Jan Eglin served as the European Director at Human Rights Watch. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Eglin, for taking the time to join the show. 
Also joining us is my colleague, VOA International Broadcaster, Carol Van Dam. Thank you, Carol, and I appreciate your time as well. My pleasure. Well, Mr. Eglin, the world is seeing, even in real time, faces of the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine caused by Russia's invasion of the country. How does the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine compare in terms of international response and aid to what others in conflict areas have been experiencing for years, such as Afghanistan, the DRC, and Syria? The Ukraine disaster here in Europe has been so explosive that, again, three million people being displaced per week is more than we've seen anywhere else in my now 35 years of humanitarian work. The outpouring of sympathy, resources, aid has also been enormous. Everything has had a breakneck speed, which doesn't necessarily mean that the suffering is worse than the suffering in even poorer countries like Afghanistan or Yemen, or for that matter, Syria, which has had this kind of a war for more than a decade. It is, however, the Ukraine explosion coming on top of everything else that is making us as humanitarians more overstretched, more underfunded, more overwhelmed than we've been in a generation. As this invasion continues, what do you see happening with the people of Ukraine and also the economy of the country? But the war has been so brutal, so intense in so many corners of the country, I mean, along the borders in the north and the east and the south, that it has crippled Ukrainian life, really. The war seems to be moving every week in a different direction, now going more east again, where it actually was and where it originated at the beginning of all of this, but uh, it leaves behind many, many towns and cities devastated by warfare. What is the cardinal sin in these wars of both Ukraine, Syria, Yemen, is that they've taken the war to the cities. It's urban warfare with explosive weapons, which means that the civilian toll is so dramatic. It's all over Ukraine. I was there before the war because the Norwegian Refugee Council has had programs there since the previous war in 2014. And what I saw along that, the then existing front line in the east, where a lot of hundreds of thousands of freezing pensioners who were in villages and towns that had been recently repaired from the first war, all of those people have now been engulfed by fighting for more than a month. Carol, if you would like to jump in. I'm just wondering how it is for these refugee organizations like your own, the Norwegian Refugee Council is, you know, respected around the world. How do you approach, you know, getting to try to access these people, these poor people who are trying to get out with their lives and their children, women, they're all being bombed in all these different cities across the country. It doesn't seem like there's very many safe places. How do you get in there to try to help them? Well, we had 70 colleagues on the ground when this started, and, and we didn't withdraw our people. 
Most of them stayed where they were. We moved our headquarters from the capital city, Kiev, to Ivano-Frankivsk, which is, is a city further west. The operation we are having is an operation where we have a budget of $82 million for the next six months. So it's a large operation for an NGO. But we are spending all of the money we have on three things. First, assistance and aid inside Ukraine. We do cash distributions, you know, cash directly in the, in the hands or at the bank, into the bank accounts of mothers and fathers on the move is the most effective way to help families and children in a place like Ukraine, because in most places it is still possible to purchase, you know, supplies. But the second way we're working is to establish now lifelines from the neighboring countries, from Poland, from Romania, Moldova, uh, with food supplies and with emergency relief that you cannot easily purchase in a war zone anymore. So that's the cross-border relief shipments. And thirdly, we've set up operations in the neighboring countries, predominantly in Poland, in Romania and Moldova, uh, where we help some of the hundreds of thousands of people who have left. I opened one reception center, for example, on the East Railway Station in Warsaw, together with the mayor of Warsaw when I was there 10 days ago. And uh, that we built in less than a week, we built the 9,000 square meters reception centers that is now receiving thousands of refugees. It seems to be the only way you can help those people because they're kind of on their own. I just heard an account of a woman who was killed you know, they make these fires, they have to do it over an open fire to try to make a meal for their family in a, like a doorway or entranceway. And the reporter said that the Russian soldiers were coming down the street. She ran inside. They shot at her through the door and killed her. I mean, you can't go into a place like that. You have to wait till they cross the border pretty much, right? The majority of our operations as an organization operation inside Ukraine will be in Ukraine. But it's true, we cannot work under crossfire, we cannot work where they are bombing constantly. We cannot work in Mariupol, which is a besieged area. But we can work in many of the towns from the west to the center of the area. And we're now establishing also a relief into the eastern parts, which are the poorest areas of Ukraine and where we do still have colleagues on the ground. We had 40 colleagues in a place called Severodonetsk in Luhansk. Some of them are now in areas taken by Russian forces. I mean, they're part of society there. And they all want to resume work as aid workers as soon as they can. And in many places, it is now safe enough to do relief work inside Ukraine. Also, are you finding children being separated from their parents, as we have seen happen in other countries experiencing a crisis? Yes. The majority of those who fled, especially in the first weeks, were families with children. Very many mothers with children because the men were left behind, stayed behind, were ordered to stay behind to fight. Very many men accompanied their wives and their children to the border. We've seen that in so many places. And then we take them on in our refugee work 
across the border. But I differ with some of my colleagues who say this is an, an emergency for the children of predominantly here in Ukraine. What differs here, Ukraine, compared to Afghanistan or, or African wars or Yemen or, or for that matter Syria is the number of elderly. I mean, this is a population where in the areas of combat, the majority are, uh, you know, from if in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. I was in a village just at the front line there in Donetsk. 37 people in that village. It was right at what was an active frontline. There was shelling there every week for eight years. I would say the average age in that village was 75 years old. A lot of them were widows. Their husbands were minors. One of the elderly ladies said, I cannot go anywhere now. I will not leave. My husband is dying from cancer at home in my hut. I will stay. I've heard stories like that too, where there's families where the elderly parents live with them and they had to make a decision because they have one car or enough gas for just one car and they have to decide who goes and who stays. And yep. the elderly yes. people will, will often say, I can't make it anyway, and they stay behind. Yeah, and they prioritize uh, security for the children. So uh, there is a lot of children in now in the neighboring countries and a lot of mothers on their own, very vulnerable. But the war is at home, and of course, there there are millions and millions who are in, in the middle of the fighting. Very heartbreaking situation. Time now for a short break, and when we return, we'll continue our discussion. I'm Kim Lewis, and joining me on the panel is VOA International Broadcaster Carol Van Dam. We're with Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Eglin. We're discussing how wars, internal conflicts, human rights violations, and political instability disrupt people's lives, leading to numerous humanitarian crises around the world. This is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, Najib Heran from Paktia, Afghanistan. If you want to hear your name on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on Facebook. Now back to our discussion. Mr. Eglin, I want to turn to Afghanistan where Taliban authorities announced girls' secondary and high schools will be suspended until further notice. What is your organization seeing on the ground there? It's a major, major, major disappointment that the Taliban went back from their promise that all girls would be back in school now at the end of March. They say that when I was in Kabul myself just after the takeover of the Taliban in September of last year, we had them also in Oslo and a Taliban delegation much later, and they repeated the would-be school, secondary school, tertiary school for children, and now it's not happening. So we need to fight for a policy change here. Norwegian Refugee Council has been in Afghanistan for very many years. We have been able to operate all over the country, including in Taliban-controlled areas. We had girls' schools in Taliban-controlled areas long before they took over the country, but they are now 
going back to very reactionary attitudes on secondary education for girls, which doesn't mean that we stop doing relief in Afghanistan. We urge donors to also give us increased funding because the crisis is so tremendous. It would be a disservice to girls if they starve to death while we fight to have education resumed. But we need education also for all on all levels. Carol? Yeah, you know, Kim, I just did an interview actually last Friday with an ICRC spokesperson in Bangkok, but she was talking about the situation in Afghanistan regarding maternal health is really seriously in trouble. She said there's a lot of ICRC supported hospitals and because of the international reaction to the Taliban coming in, you know, all the funds were frozen in the banks, they have no money for the hospitals. And then even the ones that are you know, ICRC supported are having trouble helping these women who are pregnant and the ones that are lactating and they're helping their newborn children too. It's become a real crisis situation. Have you run into that kind of trouble or do you know about that in Afghanistan? Yes, absolutely. Listen, what happened when the Taliban took over was not only that American and NATO military and diplomats and others left. Development aid, which was enormous, was frozen. The sanctions that were on the Taliban as a political movement now became slammed on the official Afghanistan because they took over. And of course, that meant that the banking system was paralyzed. The central bank of the country doesn't really operate, which again means that we as an organization with 1,400 staff on the ground and exploding horrific needs around us cannot really transfer the aid money we have from many countries to our colleagues on the ground in Afghanistan through normal bank wires. We have to use the Havala system, which is the traditional money lending systems in those parts of the world. It's much uh, more insecure. It is more expensive. We have to travel in with cash. We have to buy in the neighboring countries instead of contributing to the economy and, and livelihoods inside Afghanistan. It's very, very difficult. So actually, at the moment, my colleagues on the ground say it's not only the Taliban holding us back, like for education for girls, it's even more the international sanctions that are holding us back in the race to save lives in Afghanistan. And she said to her name is Anita Dullard, the spokesperson, she said it's really hard to convince people to fund these groups like your group, the Norwegian Refugee Council and the ICRC, when the Taliban is in control, it becomes a political question because people say, well, I don't want to support the Taliban, so I'm not going to give money to Afghanistan. Yeah, and again, that's a fundamental misunderstanding. I don't want to fund the Taliban myself either. I mean, it's a political military movement. They took power with guns in their hands. I want to help and save the same women, children, civilians, disabled who was there during the previous government that got enormous sums of Western support. It's the same civilians that the West left behind when they rushed for the door 
in August of last year. That is the fundamental premise for all we're doing. So when they're on the ground, we're independent organizations. We can guarantee that the aid goes straight to those in great need. We can also, as UN agencies, guarantee that money that is earmarked for teachers and doctors and nurses and water engineers, all those who are needed to get a society running, those salaries would go straight to the same employees. That's why we do need the U.S. to take more of a leadership role in avoiding that those sanctions really strangle not not the men with big beards and, and guns in their hands. They will eat well. Civilians are the ones who now are perishing because the economy is strangled. Thank you for bringing out that point. And I want to turn now to the DRC, where almost 20 million people are acutely food insecure. People have been dealing with the fallout of conflicts, epidemics, such as Ebola and natural disasters. And in looking at Human Rights Watches on their website, they have a picture of a very petite 15-year-old young lady in Eastern DRC who was beaten by police. They accused her of being a sorcerer and detained her for about 10 hours. Her actual so-called crime was that she had participated in a peaceful march organized by the Citizens Movement. Benja is her name, and she said when she was finally released, she hurt all over and could barely walk. So it is so hard to imagine a grown man beating on a young woman. How do you stop this type of abuse of women and girls in the DRC that has been taking place for so many years? Indeed. I mean, the abuse, including sexual abuse by armed groups of uh, women and girls, is rampant, has been rampant. It's still continuing. However, it's also possible to do very good work for very vulnerable people who are then helped to help themselves. My organization, the NRC, has a large program all over Eastern DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, where the needs are the greatest, where the Congolese men and women we employ are able and willing to go to hard to reach areas and help very, very vulnerable people. So I've seen a lot of hope as well, a lot of children going to school, a lot of youngsters getting employment, a lot of people being able to till this very, very rich agricultural land and make livings out of that. So we cannot give up. I would again say DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is the perhaps most neglected emergency on earth measured in lack of attention from international media and diplomats, from lack of initiatives to prevent all of the local conflicts there, and lack of funding compared to the number of people in great need. Why is that? Why has the DRC been neglected so? There are several reasons for it. It's not in Europe, like in Ukraine. It doesn't have a great power involved in the war there, like the Russia in Ukraine, or Russia or the United States now of late in Afghanistan. It's not in the crossroads of a strategically important area like the Middle East, like Syria or Israel-Palestine. It is 
in the periphery of the interest of international media, of international politicians. It's not strategically important. The people, they are not fleeing to the Mediterranean. They are stuck where they are, but the suffering is immense, really. And as you mentioned, 20 million people in need. It's much bigger than most other emergencies measured in lives at stake. Isn't it also partly because in the DRC you have, you kind of alluded to this, they have all these different rebel groups fighting each other. You don't have one central government and then we know who the enemy is. True. It is more complicated, of course, also, for example, to really get an end to the abuse of women. When in northern Kivo, when I was there, I heard they had my colleagues on the ground had mapped 120 armed groups there. And the government army is, is sort of seen as one of many armed groups fighting for power, fighting for territory, fighting for resources. That is much more difficult in terms of having peace. Let's hope that Ukraine and Russia as the attacking body doing an invasion will stop it. It's not difficult to end that war. It's political decisions on the top levels. It's more difficult when there are many, many uh, local groups. Still, it's possible. So we're working with the armed groups and we're getting agreements and we're getting through and we're getting access and we are reaching a lot of people. We lack funding to reach many more. I wanted to get in just a couple of more questions before we have to wrap up. And looking at the situation in Yemen, you say, quote, while the warring parties have been attacking and destroying civilian life with impunity, the international community has looked on and even poured fuel on the fire with no respite for the Yemeni people. Why is the situation in Yemen being overlooked by the international community? Well, again, it, this one has lasted for many years. There is now a glimmer of hope. In Yemen, a two-month ceasefire has been announced, which is the first nationwide ceasefire in a long time, and that could lead to us being able to reach more people and also for people to have a respite from the fighting. It is a conflict where the government sitting in Sana'a the movement called Ansar Allah, some call them the Houthis. They are supported in part by Iran. The government, which is sitting in Aden in the south, is supported by the Gulf countries. Arms to that conflict come from the West, including from the United States. And it's just continuing and continuing. That's what I say. Why are these powers bringing fuel to fire and arms to the fire rather than demanding a ceasefire and demanding a negotiated end to a senseless conflict costing so many lives? And Carol, do you have any last words? I'm going to have to wrap it up. No, I was wondering if Mr. Erdogan could talk a little bit about South Sudan. I've been an editor with South Sudan and Focus VOA program for over 10 years, and, you know, the refugee crisis there is terrible, too. South Sudan is one of the youngest nations on Earth. There was a lot of optimism because the birth of the country was the product of a peace agreement where they split from the rest of Sudan, got their own nation, and unfortunately they were thrown into ethnically-based conflict 
from the second year of the country's existence. And those conflicts have never been healed. There are people who are living in internal exile because they cannot dare to go to their ancestral land anymore. And we are really struggling to get a country with, as you may have seen, Carol, fantastic resources, agricultural land that has not really been used at all, fertile land, so on, cannot be used because of internal armed conflict, which again, we're trying to help resolve through local peace processes and negotiations. We need to invest in the youth and hope that they do not repeat the mistakes of their parents. That's what's so frustrating to the people there. They want to farm their own land. They want to cultivate it. They know how to do it, but they can't because they don't feel safe. They don't feel safe. And the cattle that they could have sent to vast areas of possible grazing land, they cannot because it will be stolen and rustled by the armed groups. It is frustrating, but it just also shows the potential of these places. They can feed themselves, they can feed their neighboring nations if they get peace. So that's what we have to work for. We have to resume with all efforts the conflict resolution work in places like South Sudan. Well, we will have to end the show on that note. My distinguished guest for this special edition of PCUSA is Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Jan Eglin. Mr. Eglin, thank you so much for providing us with these so important updates on some of the most dire situations in the world. I appreciate you taking the time. And my thanks also goes to VOA international broadcaster, my colleague, Carol Van Dam. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join Carol Castiel next weekend for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.